good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. And welcome to Hudson Institute's conference on the current and future security relationship uh, between the United States and Taiwan. I'm very glad to see everybody here this morning on our continued uh, wet and humid weather, which we hope will soon end. Um, I'm Seth Cropsey, a senior fellow here at Hudson, and, uh, uh, director of Hudson's um, Center for American Sea Power. In his uh, National Defense Strategy of the United States, published earlier this year, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis wrote that, uh, this is a quote, interstate comp strategic competition, not terrorism, is now the primary concern uh, in U.S. national security. The following sentence of the same document's executive summary offers a little more detail. China, says the, the, uh, the strategy document, is a strategic competitor using predatory economics to intimidate its neighbors while militarizing features in the South China Sea, unquote. Later in the same document, there are more specifics. China is leveraging military modernization, influence operations, and predatory economics to coerce neighboring countries to reorder the Indo-Pacific region to their advantage, end of quote. Strategic competition, if the term requires further definition, uh, is shorthand for a broad range of conflicting interests. Diplomacy, uh, preserving alliances, theoretical and applied sciences, research, military technology, finance, intellectual property, uh, trade, cyber capabilities, um, and use, uh, to name but a few of them. Of this large pie, economics is a single, albeit very important, slice. This is the one that currently receives the most attention uh, in the media and uh, in our uh, in our politics. But all the elements of the strategic competition that the Secretary of Defense listed are in fact in play. So the new commander of the US Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Philip Davidson, uh, I think understands this very, very clearly. Uh, during his confirmation hearings in March of this year, Admiral Davidson told the Senate that, and this is a quote, China is now capable of controlling the South China Sea in all scenarios short of war with the United States, end of quote. He considers, and these are his words, China to be a peer competitor, not because it has surpassed American military strength, but because the PRC is developing such asymmetrical capabilities as hypersonic missiles and robotic submersibles. Admiral Davidson, Davidson stated that there is no guarantee that the United States would win a future conflict with China. Those are his words. What does this mean for the United States-Taiwan security relationship? Earlier this year, and that's the subject that we're looking at today, 
Earlier this year, the United States Congress passed an act to encourage more senior level official exchanges between Taipei and Washington. Uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Alex Wong visited Taipei in March. The possibility that National Security Advisor John Bolton might visit Taiwan has been raised publicly. President Trump approved a more than $1 billion arms sale package to Taiwan. The U.S. State Department approved licenses that will allow U.S. defense contractors to sell critical technology needed for Taiwan's indigenous submarine program. These measures are good. Are they enough? The U.S. is now conducting freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea more frequently than did the Obama administration. But again, is it enough to demonstrate our commitment to the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979? The PRC seeks control of the first island chain, whose center is Taiwan. Have dedicated sufficient resources and attention to dissuade the PRC's rulers from using force against Taiwan been put in place? And if not, what should be done in the United States, in Taiwan, and among our close allies in East Asia, all of whom have a large and critical stake in the future of Taiwan's democracy, prosperity, and safety from China's use of force. I'm reminded of a recently published book by former Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, uh, my former boss called um, Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. Here's the connection. The book explains how the Carter administration had used an underfunded Navy defensively to protect choke points and strategic approaches to them. Its successor, the Reagan administration, substantially increased the Navy's size, using it aggressively to divert Soviet attention from the European Central Front and complicate Moscow's strategic force plans. So my question is, is there a lesson for today? Shouldn't we be helping Taiwan, as well as other nations in the region that China threatens, build the infrastructure to deter the PRC and complicate their problems? China has them. But we lack coastal defense cruise missiles. They would certainly complicate an invasion force's ability to conduct an imposed landing. Why not build and deploy uh, coastal defense cruise missiles um, and help Taiwan with its own missile coastal defenses? Changing the composition of our aircraft carrier's air wing more rapidly to include long-distance unmanned strike aircraft would allow carriers, U.S. carriers, and their escorts to provide deterrence at a distance from the mainland greater than the range of China's so-called ship killer missiles. So the large subject of the threat to Taiwan, um, U.S. and Taiwanese perspectives, and how best to reset U.S.-Taiwan security relations is what today's distinguished panelists 
will examine. Um, Dr. Michael Tsai was Vice Minister of Defense and then Minister of Defense of Taiwan. Uh, he has served in Taiwan's national legislature and is certified to practice law in California, New Jersey, and New York, in case you need a lawyer. Other of his distinguished achievements you'll find in, I think, in the flyer for today's event. Uh, Dr. Paris Chang is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the Pennsylvania State University and President of the Taiwan Institute for Political, Economic, and Strategic Studies. He, too, has served as a member of Taiwan's national legislature and is Deputy General as Deputy Secretary General of Taiwan's National Security Council. Uh, Dr. Rick Fisher is a senior fellow on Asian military affairs at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. He's a well-known authority on the PRC's military and the military balance in Asia. He has advised the U.S.-China Security and Economic Review Commission and Dr. Steve Bryan is one of the United States' leading experts on defense technology. He served as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Trade Security Policy and also as a commissioner of the U.S.-China Security Review Commission. Uh, just a small administrative remark, and then I will uh, leave the, let the speaker speak. Um, after our speaker's remarks, I expect there'll be a time for question period. After being recognized, will you please wait for the microphone so that we can hear your question? And then identify yourself and organization and to whom your question is addressed. And finally, uh, we would appreciate it if you would ask your question in the form of a question. Uh, following conclusion of the public event, there will be a private meeting in this room for which I ask the invitees who know who they are uh, to remain. Thank you very much. Uh, Paris? Dr. Kropsky, distinguished members of our panel, and friends, and member of the media. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Kropsky and Hudson Institute for hosting uh, this very important event. And I also want to thank our two American uh, participants, panelists, uh, to take part. A few days ago, United States government recalled U.S. ambassador from Panama, El Salvador, and Dominican Republic because these countries, they saw out themselves China and switched diplomatic relation from Taiwan uh, to Beijing. 
we in Taiwan uh, thanks American government for this timely and very important uh, gesture of support. Taiwan still have nine diplomatic partners in Latin America, South America, Central America, and Caribbean. And I'm sure China would try to buy them off one by one. Taiwan's diplomatic allies in Latin America used to be more than 12, but it has done, come down to nine. And China, of course, will try very hard. And it's important now that the United States recognize what China's doing. After all, this is American backyard. And uh, the United States finally realized China's so-called one belt, one road, has reached Latin America, American backyard. And China uh, acts somewhat differently from the Soviet. Uh, back in the early 1960s, the Soviets set up a military base in Cuba, but that was only one country, and the United States easily dealt with it. Now China's approach somewhat subtle, smarter, and, well, very skillful. They, one by one, uh, would take over uh, these diplomatic allies. Uh, we in Taiwan used to feel that uh, our diplomatic allies in Latin America also safeguard the backyard for the United States. But in earlier years, State Department didn't seem to appreciate what Taiwan has done and what Taiwan can do uh, in Latin America in cooperating with the United States. But now the new administration, uh, well, consider China's threat is apparent and must be. The United States must do something uh, really to uh, deter well, uh, China from buying off all these uh, Taiwan's uh, diplomatic allies. And so we uh, uh, want to express our thanks for our American uh, friends. Um, we in Taiwan are uh, also very grateful that uh, in the past two years, the United States have a new approach towards Taiwan and towards China. Uh, starting from December last year, <clears throat> the United States government unveiled the first national security strategy report. And in it, the United States, for the first time in many decades, identified China as principal threat to the United States, the enemy. Because under the Chinese 
leader Xi Jinping. China is trying to realize its so-called China dream. And this China dream includes absorbing Taiwan, annex Taiwan into China's uh, control, and also defeat United States and supplant United States as the world superpower. And Xi Jinping has his own idea how to change Pax Americana and, uh, well, try to set new world order. This is what China is doing. And so now America realized uh, the challenge from China to American values, American national security interests, and American uh, policy all these decades. So these uh, uh, Taiwan-friendly legislation passed by the U.S. Congress and signed by President Trump. We have high hope for them. But up to now, these uh, legislation remain largely sense of Congress alone. The administration hasn't yet really implemented them. And this is uh, worrisome to us. Uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, from Taiwan, looking at American politics, I'm saying, thinking that, uh, well, are there too many panda huggers still in US government? And they try to block and try to sabotage the new policy, new strategy of uh, Trump administration. Could that be that? Well, I don't know. I'm just guessing. But I'd like to hear uh, American friends uh, as to why up to now nothing very much has been done despite all these uh, National Defense Authorization Act, Taiwan Travel Act, and all that. But at least I feel that the new administration is able to distinguish friends from enemy, know who's enemy and who's friend. And we are very uh, gratified that the Taiwan has often been called partner, and uh, we been called, we are the light tower of our democracy, human rights, uh, freedom for Asia. And, uh, but we feel um, still much uh, can be done between the United States and, and Taiwan. And we know China is angry. They say that the United States playing Taiwan car. And therefore, well, China's been uh, pushing Taiwan, putting lots of pressure on Taiwan, military action and all that. And China's very skillful in, in their so-called United Front strategy. They buy Taiwan's newspapers, buy Taiwan's televisions, 
and using this media instrument well, uh, for propaganda purpose, try to brainwash our people and uh, propagate China's agenda in Taiwan. So we are worried. And um, <clears throat> ordinary people, not uh, the informed public, they do not really know what's happening and whether the United States would come to Taiwan's uh, assistance when China actually tried to invade, tried to annex Taiwan. Well, I have a suggestion. Actually, I, well, our group yesterday went to Congress, and uh, Congressman uh, Steve Shabot, who played a very important role in several of this uh, Taiwan friend legislation, I suggest to him, uh, could you try to initiate and try to work out a congressional resolution, just like a 1955 Formosa resolution. At that time, there's a treaty between United States and Taiwan, Republic of China, mutual defense treaty, and the Congress adopted the resolution authorizing President Eisenhower to use whatever means available to defend Taiwan against China's invasion. I think if U.S. Congress is doing that today, according to the uh, Taiwan Relations Act, then I think uh, served uh, great purposes. I think it's a very clear signal that uh, well, United States stand by its allies and will be ready well, to fight if China wants to invade Taiwan. This is according to Taiwan Relations Act. Well, there are some uh, US people say, hey, that's going to be a war against or with China. I don't know whether uh, U.S. policy towards Taiwan is a function of U.S.-China relation, or really United States has an independent policy towards Taiwan. Well, I hope that uh, uh, very soon uh, the U.S. government uh, would initiate another Taiwan policy review. There was one Taiwan policy review in 1994, 15 years after the United States de-recognized the government in Taiwan, Republic of China. And that particular Taiwan policy review under Clinton administration says that the uh, United States will no longer support Taiwan's membership in international organizations such as the United Nations that require state food other membership and the other restrictions, self-imposed restrictions. China didn't ask for those, but well, some people in the State Department did uh, draw up a list of restrictions, self-imposed on U.S.-China, U.S.-Taiwan relations. So if Taiwan is an ally, it is a partner for the United States in this uh, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, I think it's time long overdue that the United States ought to have another 
review of uh, Taiwan, uh, review of U.S. policy towards Taiwan. And uh, I, I think uh, this is something we want to uh, put up, proposing uh, to uh, the attended public here and hopefully uh, the media could report what Taiwan wants. Well, <clears throat> another matter is that uh, if the United States could, relation, could restore relations with Cuba, it used to be an enemy, right? And uh, they serve as a military base for the Soviet uh, to threaten the United States. We all know what happened in the Cuban crisis. Now, if uh, uh, the U.S. administration could do that, why not Taiwan? After all, Taiwan is a democracy. Taiwan is an ally. Uh, why not we can normalize the relation? Uh, so this is something well, from Taiwan's perspective we uh, want to present it uh, to the American uh, the government. And this uh, uh, new relationship, some people in the State Department say, hey, that will be war with China. They're afraid that there will be war in China. Uh, those of us who have some sense of history, we all remember <laughs> Back in 1936, if, well, when Nazi Germany rearmed Rhineland, if the British, French, and American wanted to stop Hitler, <laughs> I think there will be no World War II. Uh, when some sacrifice, you know, we didn't uh, do, then, well, you're going to run into a much, much larger threat afterwards. So if you realize uh, China is a threat and eventually it's going to defeat and supplant the United States, then you've got to be prepared for the worst and from now. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Paris. Thank you, <laughs> Greeting from Taiwan. Uh, Today we have about 23 uh, 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 delegates. Uh, from Taiwan uh, to come to the United States uh, for the purpose of promote Taiwan to join the United Nations. Uh, I want to, uh, with a profound respect and humanity, I would like to thank uh, Hassan Institute, uh, particularly Seth uh, Krupsi and the U.S. Uh, capable, capable uh, assistant uh, Mattis arrange this kind of uh, nice uh, seminar uh, for us uh, to have a better opportunity to communicate with American friends. Uh, 
Before talking about the resetting of U.S. and Taiwan relations from a Taiwanese uh, perspective, uh, I would like to make some specific suggestion toward the end of my presentations. But before that, I would like to share some of the idea. What happened? Or what is happening in the Asian Pacific? Where is a potential flashpoint maybe incurred in that particular area? I will point, pinpoint this three area. Could be the potential confrontations, if not a war. The first one, of course, Korea, Peninsula, Beihan, Taoshan Bandung. This is the first one. Although the tension of the uh, Korean pen, the uh, Peninsula has been uh, lower because of the uh, uh, negotiation between the United States and North Korea, vis-a-vis -vis South Korea and China. A second area of potential flashpoint is South China Seas, Nanzhongguohai, South China Seas. For the last two or three years, we witnessed China had extensively filled the land isolate into a, a land. And there are three airfield has been built. So the uh, PLA, People Liberation Army, their jet fighter can land the, you know, this areas in South China Seas. And also the missile radar bases in that particular area. That posed the in potential military confrontation between, not only between the China and the United States, Japan, but also Many, many countries, their aircraft, their ship, goes through that particular area, South China Seas. The third area of potential flashpoint is Taiwan Strait, Taiwan Haisha. You know, for the last six months, the Ministry of National Defense Taiwan they announced for the six, last six months, there are 59 China's military jet come across the Taiwan Strait, even advanced to the first island chain, the east coast of Taiwan, even advanced to the Guam area. 59 times the jet fighter, China jet fighter. And the more than 10 times, the China's the warship 
including the aircraft carrier Liaoning Hao. They pass through the Taiwan Strait, even go to the east, east side of China, uh, Taiwan's uh, surrounding water area. To us, to Taiwanese people, China such kind of provocative actions or military action is a semi-aggression against Taiwan. This is three potential area. And all three potential flashpoint area, China plays an important role in that three area. South China Sea, Taiwan Strait, and also North Korea, <coughs> Korea Peninsula area. Therefore, what we can do, what the United States as a superpower, they have played an important role in the past half century after the end of World War II. Now, in the face of China, very, very provocative and aggressive military, political, as well as economical activities, what we should do together. And this is the reason why I would like to make a certain proposal not only a benefit to the Taiwan, but also compatible with United States national interest and strategies. And also would, I believe, would be benefit not only Taiwan and the United States, but also benefit to the Japan, Korea, and many, many countries in Southeast Asia nations for peace security, and prosperities altogether. The first one, I think uh, my good friend uh, Paris Chang, he just mentioned, he like, we like United States reconsidering the 1994 Taiwan policy guideline in which prohibit Taiwan to join the international organization, which statehood is preconditioned, is for request. 1994 Taiwan policy guideline also refrained from inviting Taiwanese government leaders, including president, vice president, ministers, our national defense, foreign affairs, to come to Washington, D.C. to have substantive talk or negotiation with the United States counterparts. Nineteen ninety-four Taiwan policy review stipulate under the Clinton administration, nineteen ninety-four, which to me and to many of us is incompatible, even contradict with the Taiwan Trouble Act. 
and contradict to the NA, I'm sorry, NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, which passed by joint, by joint resolution House and Senate, and also signed by the President Trump into the law of the United States. Taiwan Trouble Act and NDAA Act, they show the congressional as well as administrative willingness to promote a better bilateral relations between Taiwan and the United States. In the ranking top level, This is my first proposal for you, for the American administration for consideration. The second, when I'm talking now about the Taiwan Travel Act and NDAA, we are looking forward for the US administration to implement this Travel Act and NDAA in spirit and in substance in according to this law. Well, I happen to be the American trained uh, lawyers in California and in New York State so that I read this act carefully. But this, of course, depends on the uh, State Department and the White House. How willing to implement and carry out this new act in a good faith to help for the better substantive relation between the United States and Taiwan. And third, I will propose, I have proposed before, several years ago, to have a joint joint military exercise between United States and Taiwan. Even I would like to expand to invite Japan because uh, Japan and the United States had the mutual defense arrangement. Japan will play an important role to defend along with the United States and Taiwan to defend the peace and security in Asian Pacific, in my personal opinion. In the past, in Taiwan, we have annual full-scale military exercise we call Hanguang Yanxi. In fact, we did invite some US retired admiral, general, and ranking officers retired. They come to Taiwan as observers. Many times in my personal experience, and we have good, good communications before and after the military exercise. But after the NDAA, which has just passed about a few months ago, I'm, we are proposing that 
bilateral joint military access can be incurred, can be planned and incurred. This can be done. That can be a good platform or mechanism to show a concrete bilateral cooperation to deter China, <clears throat> to deter China from taking further provocative and aggressive actions. Finally, if I may also propose, before 17, 1979, before the United States broke out the uh, diplomatic relation with Taiwan, U.S. sent a military advisory group, could be 60 person, ranking officers stationed in Taiwan, help Taiwan to formulate national defense policies, military procurement program, and help Taiwan in actual training and logistic support. So I would like to see, we would like to see the United States, Taiwan, and even Japan come together to set up a mechanism or platform for the management of emergency, just like China. The aircraft come into this water area, space area of Japan, Okinawa area, come to the Taiwan, come to the China Sea how we can work together, United States, Taiwan, and Japan, even Philippines, Singapore, we should working together to form a small NATO in Asian Pacific, just to deter China from taking the further actions against peace and stability in Asian Pacific. Okay, with that, I have to step down because they gave me only 10 minutes. So after the, uh, my good, two good friend presentation, I will be more than happy to see your question. Thank you. Thank you for the kind invitation to uh, join you, uh, my old boss, uh, back at uh, the Hudson Foundation, and to join uh, such a distinguished panel. Uh, Paris, Michael, Steve uh, have worked very hard to ensure that if the day comes anytime soon that we need to revive our old formal military alliance with Taiwan that the work has been done to be able to transition into that very, very quickly. I, I say this as Paris has reminded us that there are new winds blowing. There appears to be an, a 
an understanding growing within the Trump administration that the our one China policy, as we call it, is not serving American interests. The recalling of our diplomatic personnel from Latin America about uh, two, two, three weeks ago to protest the reversion of three countries' relations from Taiwan to China is very, very telling that for the first time since we ended our relationship, formal relationship with Taiwan in 1979, that we're defending Taiwan's relationship with another country tells me that we're beginning to understand that China's ability to undermine the security and stability of any democracy starts when that country signs on to China's one China policy. Michael reminded us that the defense relationship that we have with Taiwan is insufficient. It is not meeting our defense requirements. It's not meeting defense requirements in the face of China's not just threat to Taiwan, but in the South China Sea, but global threat. And one of the pillars of our One China policy, the Taiwan Relations Act, which will see its 40th anniversary next year, states very clearly, Section 2, to determine any effort to consider, or excuse me, to consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, or wait a second, nope, here, to make clear that the United States' decision to establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China rests upon the expectation that the future of Taiwan will be determined by peaceful means. That is not happening. Now, that, that's a conclusion, and I'll get back to it. Seth had asked me to address uh, the fi findings of this year's Department of Defense China Military Power Report. Uh, for those of you who are, who are familiar with it, it's a Washington institution. Next year will be its 20th anniversary. Uh, it, it, uh, it was born amidst uh, a partisan contest in the late 1990s, concerned by Republicans and many Democrats that the Clinton administration was not paying sufficient attention to military developments in the People's Republic of China. Uh, it uh, passed handily in the House, but I believe in the Senate it was one of the classic uh, midnight rider exercises, where literally uh, at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning it gets inserted into a piece of legislation and uh, um, history. It is this report is has become the most credible document issued by any government that defines China's military power and places that definition on China's possible intentions. Every year the Chinese government protests the China Military Power Report. And it's grown. 
Early issues roughly averaged about 40, 40 to 50 pages. The latest issue is 140 pages. Uh, it is, uh, by and large, a consensus document of the intelligence community. It doesn't tell us everything our government knows about China's military modernization. Uh, it has to balance uh, its, its mandate of informing the Congress with protecting American intelligence sources and methods. Uh, there is a classified version, but I've never seen it. Uh, during some years, this report has been briefed to Chinese officials, according to uh, reports provided, I believe, by Bill Gertz. But the report has never grown to, it, to its real potential. It's never approached the utility of the Soviet military power series of the 1980s, initiated by the late Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger. The reason for this, I'm, I'm told, is that a policy determination has yet to be made that China poses an existential threat to the United States, as was the former Soviet Union. Therefore, the China military power report does not have to rise to the full, large, illustrated uh, 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 format of the Soviet military power report. Since about 2002, however, this report has had a chapter on Taiwan security. That is settled uh, in the last decade or so into a, a chapter five presentation titled Force Modernization for a Taiwan Contingency. Uh, from 2017 to 2018, this chapter grew by 30%. And uh, it offers uh, many new data points. A uh, special section uh, uh, outlining progress with recent PLA reforms, reorganizations, and its new goal to build a joint force. Uh, former amphibious uh, army divisions have been uh, reformed into combined arms, amphibious brigades. A new PLA Marine headquarters was created last year, along with the reformation of seven Marine Corps brigades. PLA Air Force Airborne Corps is reorganized into five brigades. Uh, PLA combat aircraft in the Taiwan theater has grown from 590 in 2017 to 330 in 2000, from, uh, for, from uh, 330 in 2015. The PLA Navy's frigates and corvettes have increased to 60 last year from 54, 2015. There are new intermediate-range ballistic missiles deployed that can reach Guam. And there's a new section assessing how the PLA is being used to coerce Taiwan, exercises around Taiwan using bombers to circumnavigate Taiwan. The chapter also comments on Taiwan's defensive capabilities. Uh, it has, for a number of years, placed a stress on Taiwan's progress in moving toward uh, uh, asymmetric, new asymmetric capabilities. The report does not 
mention Taiwan's requirements for basic conventional, new conventional platform capabilities like indigenous submarines, indigenous next generation fighter aircraft, or Taiwan's longstanding quest to obtain fifth generation F-35 fighters <coughs> from the United States. Nor does the report mention Taiwan's interest and what it has done to develop offensive missiles. In the past, the United States discouraged, actively <coughs> discouraged Taiwan from developing such uh, weapons. Now, I, I will quickly go through four <coughs> complaints that I have about the report. While I believe this report is essential, I think it can be made a lot better. Um, my first point is about the report's characterization of the PLA's ability to invade Taiwan. Quote, uh, there is no indication it is significantly expanding its landing ship force necessary for an amphibious assault on Taiwan, page 100. Uh, page 95, the PLA is incapable of comp accomplishing various amphibious operations short of a full-scale invasion of Taiwan. <clears throat> that phrase has been in the report at least since 2008. Now, grant you that an inv a full-out invasion of Taiwan would be amongst the most difficult military operations in history, given the terrain, given the weather, given the need for absolute uh, intelligence, absolute surprise, and not having anything go wrong. But I would like to see a bit more realism in, in this kind of this conclusion. The PLA report does not mention that the PLA's maritime militia can mobilize scores of very large ferries to supplement PLA Navy formal amphibious lift, as well as possibly thousands of roll-on, roll-off barges that ply Chinese rivers and help to build the, the new bases in the South China Sea. When you add all this together, Taiwan estimates are that they could transport 10 to 12 divisions to Taiwan, whereas previous estimates with just using, just using the formal amphibious lift was about one to two divisions. And then what if the United States was diverted elsewhere? What if a nuclear-armed North Korea attacked somebody and the United States had to re respond and we got bogged down in a Korean conflict? Would that provide enough of a diversion, enough of a temptation for China to consider an attack on Taiwan? Second, does the report convey an appropriate sense of urgency? Uh, there, are, there is a gathering view that the likelihood of Chinese attack against Taiwan is going to increase starting in 2020. A third complaint, is it time to start discussing in this report the impact of China's global deployments on our ability to maintain enough of a presence in Asia. The report B-52 
begins to examine China's global projection and its gathering of bases by the late 2020s, the PLA Navy could have the first totally nuclear-powered aircraft carrier battle group to include nuclear-powered underway replenishment ships. That kind of flexibility combined with a future network of bases will, cause, will allow China to cause many problems. And then fourth, what about China's growing military cooperation, an alliance perhaps, with Russia. Right now, 2,300 Chinese troops are exercising in the largest Russian military exercise since the end of the Cold War in their Far East, Vostok 18. Yesterday, the Russian defense minister said these exercises needed to be made regular. So what would I suggest in my conclusions? First, the existential nature of the Chinese military challenge to the United States, in my opinion, justifies an immediate upgrade of the China military power volume. Fully illustrated charts, pictures, and it should be translated into multiple languages to assist our uh, public diplomacy. As for policy actions, it's necessary for the U.S. and Taiwan to consider significant immediate, immediate increases to our deterrent capabilities. The United States should drop its opposition to Taiwan having offensive missile capabilities and space launch capabilities. The United States should immediately begin to redeploy tactical nuclear weapons to our forces in Asia. This is the most economical and effective way to avoid a double crisis of, of a war in the Korean Peninsula, a Chinese attack uh, against Taiwan, or, or, or vice versa. We should sell Taiwan a small number of KC-135 tankers so that Taiwan can immediately respond to, Taiwan, to China's coercive exercises, especially with the bombers. Pretty soon the bombers are going to be refuelable in the air, and they're going to be doing constant circles around Taiwan. With aerial refueling tankers, Taiwan can have those F-16s to follow constantly those same bombers. And then finally, as I mentioned in the beginning, the One China policy, our One China policy, is not doing what we expected it would do when it came together in the late 1970s and as it was put together in the early 1980s. We may have to consider a different basis for our relationship with Taiwan, and if we decide to move toward reviving an alliance, an alliance that once allowed us to put nuclear weapons in Taiwan for a brief spell at the end of uh, the 1950s, again, to deter what we thought might be an imminent Chinese attack, then we need to start considering a move in that direction. Thank you very much.
Richard has a great way of cheering you up. Um, I want to thank Seth and uh, Cropsey for inviting me and thank Hudson Institute for this forum, which I think is a very important one. We are clearly at a crossroads when it comes to US, the U.S. approach to Taiwan and China. This is an important moment in time, uh, and we need uh, to change how we play the game. I think Richard Fisher's uh, analysis of uh, Chinese capabilities, which he helped present it in part today, gives you a flavor of the challenge. The, the, the long, the, the, for a long time, the U.S. approach was to supply armaments to Taiwan sufficient to act as a deterrent to China, and no more than that. Unfortunately, I think most people now recognize that that deterrent capability is eroding and eroding very badly and on many fronts, air power, eroding. Underseas capability, eroding. Surface ships capability, eroding. Uh, standard uh, armed forces capabilities, eroding. So the, this, all of this puts Taiwan into a precarious position, and it puts the United States in a precarious position. The, the, the old idea was that the, somehow, if, and, and I was in Taiwan in 1996 during the, the, the missile uh, and, uh, threat to, uh, to Taiwan, which no one knew at that moment whether it would materialize into an actual war. Um, and I was there with uh, Jim Woolsey, who was uh, with me, and, uh, and we got to feel firsthand exactly what was coming down and, and, and the problem in Washington of figuring out how to respond. It took a couple of weeks before the United States actually deployed some aircraft carriers uh, so that China understood that anything further, any further action by them would be met by force. Now, whether an aircraft carrier can do that today is open to some serious questions. I mean, China is not the same China as it was in 1996. It is a much stronger country. It has much better military technology at, at all levels. Um, and it thinks it's on the upswing in the region, which is, of course, very important. It's first island. Yeah, the uh, new Nimka. You're, you're on candid camera if you talk to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in any case, that raises a broader question about what we should be doing now. Some of what we should be doing now, the administration is starting to address, and I think the, the administration deserves a lot of applause and support for taking a proactive uh, approach to Taiwan and to Taiwan's defense. Now, it has a lot, a long way to go, but the process has started. And I think it's quite important. But there's a big missing piece. The idea of trying to get an aircraft carrier down to Taiwan if trouble starts is not a solution, not by itself. And right now, there isn't any high-level coordination, military coordination of any kind between Taiwan and the United States. 
and none at all, even rudimentary coordination with nearby Japan or Korea. That has to change because the whole region will suffer if war bro broke out with Taiwan. So my first proposal is, is a very straightforward one. We need to establish, the United States needs to put in place a high-level strategic coordination dialogue with Taiwan with the possibility of bringing in other players if they're willing. Whether they do it openly or covertly really doesn't interest me very much. What interests me very much is that the coordination take place. Now, this coordination is quite critical because this is how you do planning for various scenarios, various threat scenarios that could materialize in the area. Just an invasion of Taiwan is only one of many possibilities. There are lots of other uh, dangers lurking that could escalate into something worse. But who knows what that would be? Bombing Taiwan? Missile attack on Taiwan? Um, shooting down Taiwanese aircraft? These are just some things that could happen, and there are many, many others. Underwater warfare, another area that, that really is a very serious one. So having this high-level coordination and planning uh, undertaking is probably the number one most important thing that we should be doing right now. It's not something that needs to get high-level visibility, but it's something that needs high-level participation. That is to say, our top military brass, our best planners, Taiwan's best planners need to meet. Need to meet not just once, but frequently. Need to develop plans and programs and make recommendations. Second point that I would make is that we can put in place exercises, military exercises, actually without moving an airplane or a ship or a submarine or anything else. There was recently in, uh, in Italy, a, an exercise that was called uh, uh, Spartan Alliance 18-8. This was pretty interesting. Spartan Alliance was around 30 simulators in, in Italy, linked together. Simulators in Germany as part of a NATO participation. Simulators in the United States Air Force Warrior Preparations Center in Ramstein so that the Italian Air Force, the air assets we had in Germany, German air assets, could all coordinate on scenarios of how to deal with an attack that might materialize in place X. And I said place X because everyone knows what place X is, but they didn't have to say so. All they had to do was work out the various scenarios that might come up and see how they could respond. And by doing that, not only did they get a much better idea of what combat process would be like, what the timetables were, the timelines, and the, the requirements for equipment, the requirements for munitions, and so forth, but they also figured out where their vulnerabilities were, where their limitations were, and then they could focus on fixing those. So Spartan Alliance 18-8 turned out to be a huge success. And the first time that something like this was attempted, not one ship, not one airplane, not one tank, not one soldier, not one anybody did anything outside of a, of a 
room about this size with computers and equipment. And yet they were able to go through this process. Now, we've had war games in the United States and in NATO and elsewhere for years. And war games are important. But war games generally involve very high-level kinds of scenarios that, that officials, people like I used to be, would sit in a room and would be asked to make decisions. No, no, no. This is a different kind of thing. This is a situation where commanders, field commanders, even pilots in the room start to report what they can and can't do, what kind of success they can and cannot make. So a, this kind of process, this virtual system, actually becomes a virtual alliance. Because you don't just have to include Taiwan and the United States, you can include Japan. They don't have to t say anything. All they have to do is participate. It's all electronics, it's all encrypted, it's all on the quiet, and yet it's all very effective. So I think that's a very important thing that we can do, we can do now. Beyond that, we really should be exploring the possibility of regional alliances. Michael raised this point. It's quite a valid point. So Taiwan's future is tied not only to the United States, but it's tied to Japan, it's tied to Korea. There's no way one is going to not affect the other in very dramatic fashion. And ultimately, it's tied to America's ability to continue playing a role in, in, the, in the Eastern Pacific altogether. So alliances are one way to maximize capabilities. And we're not doing that. We should be. We're providing some of the best equipment we have to Japan now with the F-35 going in there uh, with the latest. We're hoping they'll have decent missile defense in future. I mean, things like that. We should be providing F-35 to, to Taiwan, by the way. It doesn't make sense not to. We should have the same equipment all the <coughs> way throughout because then we can have one logistics all the way throughout and we can provide the kind of support that's required. It's, it's in our self-interest. It's not just that Taiwan needs it. It's in our self-interest to have common elements, common elements in Korea, common elements in Japan, common elements in Taiwan, if we're going to mount a defense against China, because the real truth is China's becoming quite powerful. It has stealth aircraft now. I won't say they're any good. I don't know if they're any good, but they have them. They're, they're pushing the envelope as hard as they can, and they're doing it quite fast. We have the asset of the F-35 now. Uh, it is becoming available rapidly now. We should put it in Taiwan. We should put it in Korea and Japan. We're already putting it in Japan. We already have it with the Marines in Okinawa. Uh, we always already have it at the, now being introduced on the U.S. bases in Japan. But this common system, common systems, is very important, the ability to do deterrence. And that's why I think it's so important. We need to also preposition supplies. It's not good enough just to go running to a war 6,000 miles away or however 1,000 miles away it is. Uh, that's very risky. Very long lines of supply. We need to preposition stocks. Taiwan should have U.S. stocks prepositioned there for use by U.S. forces when and if needed. 
There's nothing in any of the rule books that say we can't do that. We should be doing it. You know, a warehouse is a warehouse. Where you put the warehouse is our business. But I think this would be a very good step. And lastly, but uh, equally important, is we have to think about more bases, including on Taiwan. You used to have bases on Taiwan, big ones. We don't have anything there now. We don't even have, you know, when we landed two F-18s there in an emergency. Uh, they're pretty good airplanes. It's funny how two of them had an emergency at the same time. But in any case, when we landed in there, the Chinese really didn't like it very much. Uh, good. Let's land them there more often, but let's make it a regular event. Let's put in place the, a regular scenario where we're going to bring our forces in. They're going to do something, stay a while, go home. We do it in Korea. We've done it in Japan. We do it in Okinawa. Let's do it in Taiwan. Anyway, my suggestion is that we have to move forward in these areas as quickly as we can because it's vital to the deterrence in the region, which I think is our main goal. We don't want any war or conflict, neither with China or anyone else. But if you, if you don't want it, you have to put preparations in place so you don't get it. So the bottom line, it seems to me, is that we have the... Uh, Political capability now, it's in place. We have the military capability if we care to put it in place. We have it ready. Uh, we have the tools, in other words. But the tools have to be in the right place. The arrangements have to be right. The commanders in the field have to understand what they need to do, and they have to practice it. And we have to be prepared. Thank you very much. Thank you, panelists, one and all. Excellent presentations. Uh, we do have time, limited time, for questions from the floor. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you will uh, wait to be acknowledged and then wait for the microphone and then say to whom your question is addressed and uh, form your question in the form of a question, um, we can proceed. Floor is open in the first row. I want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Crosby. Uh, you, you, you invited such uh, wonderful speakers here, um, have such a wonderful speech. Um, I'm Jin Zai Wang, minister from uh, Taiwan Presbyterian Church, which is so-called the most uh, uh, identified Taiwanese people and land uh, church in Taiwan. Um, today, we raised the issue resetting uh, U.S. and Taiwan relations because now uh, rising a new power, China in Asia, East Asia. Uh, when China becomes more power, uh, uh, she doesn't um, help this region to rebuild its order but become a threatened power. Um, the past Sunday, uh, the Com Communist Party teared down Beijing's biggest family church, teared down 
okay, just a few days ago. And other churches. And uh, the government the officials go into Christian house, uh, put, uh, put down clothes, replace Xi Jinping's photo, ask people to worship him. Okay. We are here talking about uh, uh, military, uh, armies, powers, um, but now I'm uh, raising the issue of human rights um, in all over China and the East Asia and the rest of the world. The American uh, government help China to go into the international organizations, but China doesn't follow the rules. They just break everything. Now, it's the issue, and it's the, we share Taiwan and the USA, we share the common faith, common uh, value, uh, we have the same goal. We work for the uh, social justice and the hu human rights, democracy. When we want to, we want to visit uh, uh, the uh, liberty uh, statue. Okay. Anyway, my point is, let's stand together. If uh, Cuba and the North America, North uh, Korea, attend the UN, Taiwan should be there. If uh, um, um, Russia and uh, Pakistan uh, can join there, I think we can, Taiwan can be there, should be there. That's uh, our goal and dream. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Minister. Uh, since I didn't hear a question there, um, let's move on to the next uh, the next one, sir. You have a question? Herbert Regenbogen. I'm a professor for international law and international relations at Turo Law School, New York. My question is relevant to uh, why in this um, scenarios of uh, military defense, the other contentions or the other um, aspects of international humanitarian law in terms of the religion, the domestic issues of Taiwan, which are not exposed in this discourse. And I'm sure Dr. Ryan uh, knows that the model of neutrality is a central part of the Taiwanese discussion. And this is not raised in the Washington, D.C. Uh, beltway. And why? I was in Taiwan when the conversations about neutrality uh, took place, and I, uh, my basic reaction was this is a very bad idea, uh, that Taiwan can't be neutral, because how's it going to be neutral? Neutral about what? About being invaded? Uh, it just didn't make sense to me, Herbert. Uh, I understand the 
the motive behind it is a good one. But the reality is that, that Taiwan has to be able to defend itself. It has to have allies. Uh, it's lucky to have the United States, because if it didn't, it wouldn't be here. And uh, I think in the long term, what we want is, is deterrence so people can live in peace and freedom. Coming back to your point, you know, the, the Taiwan is a nation where there is great freedom of religion, uh, something we here value very highly, and China is very afraid of, which is precisely why they're clamping down on, on the churches, closing them, uh, because they're fearful, because it's incompatible with, with the regime there and with the kind of uh, behavior that they show. It's too bad that we, no one's willing to complain about it at the United Nations. We hear so much there, but never this. But uh, as far as neutrality is concerned, I don't think so. Questions? Sir? Sir? Thank you. Um, my name is Alex, and I come with uh, Minister uh, Michael Tsai uh, to, to this uh, event. And since I'm a college student in Taiwan, and I uh, have the opportunity to discuss many uh, international issues with my uh, classmates and youth in Taiwan, so I want to ask uh, two professors here from uh, USA. Uh, so. What do you recommend, like youth and students that um, are interested in international issues and affairs, to help to spread the ideas that uh, you guys want to promote? And what can we do to help this kind of topic? Since we are there's limited power and like resources that we have. Thank you. Well, there's one thing that you can do very directly. And uh, that is uh, either become involved in some manner supporting the defense of your country. Uh, many ways to do that. It's, it's not necessarily taking up a rifle and marching, but intelligence, uh, uh, other, other, other ways to serve, uh, emergency uh, response uh, uh, organizations. And especially, uh, I would suggest that you study the condition of Taiwan's military reserve forces and consider that advocating for a much stronger and more active reserve component for Taiwan is an investment in your future, your future ability to have a job, live in freedom, raise your family, as you so desire. Uh, becoming aware and uh, uh, listening to your leaders uh, and uh, supporting, supporting leaders that uh, promise to improve the defense of Taiwan. Uh, extremely important. Uh, the benefit is direct and, and is, is all about your life and your happiness. So I, I, as, as, a, as a young person in Taiwan, I believe you should and 
you most likely will have the opportunity for a wonderful life, a wonderful career, uh, and a, an amazing family. But that will only be assured if you care about it and work for it. I can't add very much to that except to say that it's really important to, to talk to your fellow students. Um, in the United States today, I think a lot of our students are terribly misled about national security issues, uh, uh, among other things. And uh, they fail to understand a great deal about the world and, and how difficult and downright nasty it can be. So to the degree that you can convey those sorts of messages in, in a, to, your, to your friends and to your colleagues uh, is very important because they're going to form the next generation of leaders for your country, as you will. I would also add that in Taiwan, uh, there is little to no discussion about what China would do if it ever was able to take over. Uh, this is a very unsettling subject. It's, it's not something that uh, uh, government leaders uh, talk about often. There's, there's no manual uh, on how to survive uh, a, a Chinese communist uh, uh, invasion and occupation. Those, those manuals don't exist. Uh, perhaps it should. Perhaps there should be uh, uh, articles in your university newspaper uh, about uh, what do we do? How do we organize? Uh, if, God forbid, our future changes radically, then how do we survive? How do we escape? How do we, how do we re maintain the hope of freedom? in Taiwan. I think uh, for the benefit for discussion, uh, I'll give you some uh, what is Taiwanese uh, young generation, they're thinking about how they are, how do they determine to defend Taiwan. Uh, they're, <clears throat> for the last year or so, there are two or three uh, popular the polls uh, surveyed for this young people, <clears throat> young students, uh, under the uh, 35 years old. The question on the poll is this, in effect, do you want to stand up to defend Taiwan in case China, PLA, invade Taiwan? Are you willing to stand up and to fight to defend Taiwan? All those three poles with a different background, they're across. They're about from 65% to 70% of the young people under 35 that surveyed. They say, yes, we will. So that's the overwhelming majority of the uh, people. Uh, they identify themselves as they identify themselves as Taiwanese and also 
they believe they are willing to sacrifice themselves to fight to just to defend Taiwan. Therefore, your your answer say, hey, you are thinking you are just in case the PLA invade Taiwan, how and invade and occupy Taiwan? How you? Uh, well, the young people, into to my opinion, to my experience with the young people, they are looking ahead. They are going to fight. This is my personal uh, observation. Uh, we try to cultivate young people, autonomous people, to. Be aware, just you two gentlemen. Be aware of the situation of the China, human rights, uh, Taiwan's how to strengthen our democracy and the freedom uh, and the rule of law. And this is what the young people are thinking about it. Uh, I have a strong respect of this young generation. This is the reason why uh, we have more than half of our delegates. They are. They are under certified, and a lot of them they are college uh, students, graduate students, and I, I bring them here to to them to them experience American democracy and how United States can work for the peace and stability in the Asian Pacific. About five years ago, the Sunflower Movement, yeah, and the the occupation of the legislative yuan, and the Guomindang government's tolerance of that democratic expression, all of that combined was extremely impressive to American observers. We were proud. Taiwan has a democracy, and Taiwan is building a democratic culture. And that display of Protest directed against China and democratic tolerance uh, motivates those of us who advocate for the defense of Taiwan very much. I think that we've run out of time. Oh, it, well, maybe we haven't. One more question. Sir? Uh, wait, for, wait for the microphone. I have a question about the question raised by Dr. Patrick Chen. He mentioned about the Penda Agro USA, <laughs> and I think it's important and because some of those people are in the position Same token, they are also Penda Hagra in Taiwan. <laughs> what, what do you need to do? And is there some information exchange between USA and the Taiwan can be done? You know, one of the things, maybe borrow the money. Where the money? If you are Penda Hagra from Taiwan, and you have money deposited in USA, watch out. Right? So, certainly. Yesterday, I also attended a, a G20 
important, very important. I can send maybe somebody maybe fit into that kind of description. By the way, I'm KFB. I'm a co-founder of GPR. Thank you. You want to answer? Well, <clears throat> Panda Haggis, uh, for a long time, many Americans uh, feel they could work with Chinese. Uh, I have taught in the United States for almost 30 years at Penn State, and I have noticed that uh, most American experts on China, they love China. While most American experts on Soviet Russia, they hate the Soviet. So somehow in American culture, you know, because of the history, uh, the, the uh, missionaries in China and all that, uh, they have that kind of tradition culture. But anyway, another very serious matter, American mass media, or even elite a newspaper, Washington Post, New York Times, and others, they were brainwashed uh, by, by uh, the Chinese. And that shows very clearly when Pre President-elect Trump received a home call from President Tsai, Taiwan. And the next day, all these media attack uh, Trump, saying that uh, he is uh, ignorant about uh, foreign relations and all that. And so he said that, uh, well, United States sells so much arms to Taiwan every year, and why I can't take a phone uh, from Taiwan's president? And so he, he was apparently angry at the media, insult him that he was ignorant about foreign affairs. Now, starting from Kissinger, Nixon, and later on Carter, uh, U.S.-China relations were normalized, and we try to remake China. Mm. They have a, they have a, a dream, American dream, try to make China like America. There will be freedom there. There will be uh, a market economy. And of course, regrettably, they don't understand the Chinese communist. They want to replace the United States, defeat the United States. This is China's dream of Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping. And uh, too many American, even government officials today, they ashamed to admit their mistake. They didn't really understand China. And even today, after being pointed out, it's difficult for them to reconcile uh, with their past mistakes. So this is Pantahaga. And uh, uh, now, fortunately, the new administration is uh, trying to close down the Confucian Institute. This is Chinese attempt to brainwash Americans. And uh, so this is a very good thing that the Confucian Institute have been closed down. I heard that uh, my former university, I retired from Penn State University in 1997, and uh, in the past 10 years, they are Confucian Institute, and finally they closed it down. 
I had a little bit of influence for that. But anyway, it's the wrong way to go. And uh, just Pendahagas and uh, the, the American, especially informed public, got to do something about it because uh, you should not allow the United States to be brainwashed. And uh, the Condition Institute and they're buying some think tanks here in Washington. Whether they try to influence uh, the, the United States in such a way. So this is a, quite a big challenge. And in Taiwan, we'll do much, much more because uh, they are doing that. In, in Taiwan, they're buying newspapers, television stations, and brainwash our own uh, Taiwanese people. So we got to do a better job over there, too. Okay. I think. The dynamic of, of democratic debate is that if you're if you're upset and frustrated by the degree to which uh, China is influencing the debate, China's allies are influencing the debate. Well, then it's just simply incumbent to help your friends. And if you're here today, if you're tuning in uh, through the internet, then you care. And uh, supporting organizations like Hudson, supporting organizations like Global Taiwan Institute. Uh, goes a long way to fighting the good fight. And uh, that's what we do every day uh, as, as yourself. And uh, thank you. Just got to keep on going. On that happy note, um, I'd like to uh, thank Paris, Michael, Rick, Steve, for not only excellent presentations today, but um, fine answers to uh, your, your good questions. Um, uh, thank you all for participating. For, uh, for those who uh, were attending the private event afterwards, please stick around today. And for the rest of you, um, I hope you will join us at um, our next conference on Taiwan, which will take place, uh, which also take place this year. Uh, thank you very much. Um, good afternoon.